ऐसी भक्ति प्रदान स्वामी प्रोपात की जाए भक्ति रक्षक श्रीदेव गोस्वामी महाराज की जाए श्री भक्ति सरन सरस्वती को प्रोपात की जाए श्री भक्ति विनोद परिवार की जाए श्री देव गोस्वामी प्रभुपाद and whose name was later changed to Anupam by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. As the names of Rupa Goswami and Sanatan Goswami were changed from whatever they were, which I don't think is available on the historical record, to Rupa and Sanatan. We may be familiar with the titles that they held in the service of the Muhammadan government, Dabir Khas, and Sakar Malik. These are titles like congressman, senator, prime minister, secretary of state, and so forth. So they received their real names from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And Jiva Goswami presumably received his name of Jiva Goswami, Shijiva, from Rupa Goswami, whom he took initiation from. He was the only initiated disciple of Rupa Goswami. Rupa Goswami must not have been a very big guru <laughs> by today's estimation. And there are some reasons surrounding, perhaps external reasons, for Rupa Goswami's having only one initiated disciple, Sanatana Goswami, Rupa having none, Jiva Goswami having no initiated disciples. And that is worth discussing. Actually, the interestingly, the Goswamis, Rupa Goswami, Sanatana Goswami, Jiva Goswami, Gopalabhata Goswami, and Raghunathas Goswami and Raghunath Bhatta Goswami, other than Raghunathas Goswami, all of them came from outside of Nabadweep. I believe Raghunathas Goswami might have been a resident of Nabadweep or very close within the Godamandala, the circle of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. His parents are mentioned in Chaitanya Charitamrita. Raghunathas Goswami was perhaps not an exception then. I believe all of them were born or appeared outside of Nadia. And this is an interesting point. As many of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's eternal associates appeared in the world outside of Navadvip Dham. Because the question comes sometimes that why if uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is the Supreme Lord and he came with his associates, appeared in Navadvipdam, which is not different from Vrindavan, Gupta Vrindavan, hidden Vrindavan, then why his associates didn't all appear in Navadvipdam as well? But outside, in the material world, because the Dham is, while appearing in the material world, is is not material. And what answer is given by the spiritual thinkers is that Mahaprabhu arranged for them to appear outside of the Dham for the sake of propagating the message of Navadip Dham all over the world. And there were no servitors of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu who were more instrumental in that distribution of Madhurja, that Audarja Leela of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, then Rup Sanatana Goswami and Shijiva Goswami. Krishna's Kaviras Goswami says in listing the different branches of the figurative Chaitanya tree, the branches representing different devotees, Mahaprabhu, the tree itself, the gardener, the tree itself, two main trunks, Nityanandana, Dvaita, and, and so many branches. He says, of all of the branches, of the Chaitanya tree, Rupsanatana were the best of all. And like many others, but perhaps more so, they were appeared outside of Navadvip Dham 
and they came later to the mission. They joined Chaitanya Mahaprabhu after he had already taken sannyas, gone to Puri, and returned to Navadvip first time. So they came later. Seniority is not necessarily to be determined by the amount of time we've been in the mission. Of course, they were senior, but they considered themselves as juniors to many. The humility of Rupsanatan, which of course was there in Jiva Goswami also, was so extraordinary that it embarrassed Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who tried to push them in the front at one occasion in Puri Dham, in front of all of his associates, give them recognition. And the humility that they expressed at that time was painful to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, it was so intense. So from this, what I want to draw is that even in our modern times today, we hear such things as, well, if you weren't born in India or from a Vaishnava family, what kind of a devotee can you really be? Certainly not a superlative devotee, certainly not one qualified to guide others. And I've heard these things even from my own godbrothers, which is so shocking to me because there is no one that I know of in the history of the Sampradaya that stressed something that was opposed to that type of thinking than Srila Isi Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, who ate his Western disciples and what they cooked and he even washed their clothes and expected them to be representatives of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in every way. He once said about that famous shloka, Bhārta bhūmite hoila manusya janma jār janma sarta kori That everyone born in Bhārta should take up, Bhārta means India, should take up the teachings of Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam and then do good for the whole world by taking it everywhere, as he did. He said, but this order has been transferred to my Western disciples because India is so apathetic. He didn't find very fertile soil there for planting seeds for many years, and thus as, as he came out, came to America, and there he got an extraordinary amount of support, success, and he could understand Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was moving in these circles also. As I've said, related before, Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasati Thakur said that he wanted to have 10 years in America, so he had a vision of what America would be like at a time when England was really the most powerful country in the world. And he left the world before he had a chance to do that, but Sridhar Marsh said he got those ten years and two in his disciple, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. And so there may be, certainly there are, devotees from you know, all parts of the world may have even been sent there by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to be uncovered by one of his preachers to do the kind of far-reaching propaganda work that's required. And it really is, in Prabhupada's own estimation, Required, he said that the success of the Sankirtan movement will be when persons from their own countries outside of India, in their own language, from within their own cultural context, represent the teachings with insight and realization, analogies and so forth relative to that culture. So Prabhupada, although we like to think that he did so much, and certainly he did, how can one do everything when the work is unlimited? <laughs> this is the ideal of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. My name will be heard in every town and village. Gaudiya Acharyas have said he wanted a temple in every heart and that a stone would go unturned where the holy name was not chanted. Hare Krishna. So much work to do. So, so many servitors are required. So we have some responsibility. We are part of, fortunate to be part of the Bhaktivinoda Parivar, the family of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. We have a specific mission and a particular angle on certain issues, and we are very bona fide. Sampradai, we have to live up to the ideal. And we shouldn't be intimidated by this kind of nonsense propaganda. Sometimes they say these days, if he's old and his skin is dark, and his English is broken. He's just like Prabhupada. <laughs> Sukadeva Goswami was a 16-year-old boy. <laughs> hmm? He was dark. Was he dark? No, he was fair. Actually, fair complected. Comparatively, perhaps.
dark but by Indian standards. No, he was dark, actually. <laughs> Sham color. So we have to be essential spiritual thinkers. This is the idea, and it's what the Goswamis really taught. They really turned things upside down as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's mission was meant to. They formed the mission. They gave structure to the mission. They formed the actual Sampradaya around what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu represented by writing the books and explaining his ecstasy and so forth. And they gave the standards of behavior, and uh, and they did it at a time, Muslim occupation, largely of India. They had to work around that, and they also had to work around the Hindu orthodoxy, who rejected them. When they took service in the government in Bengal, which was a Muslim government, then the orthodox Hindus rejected Rup Sanatana and Jiva Goswami by association, also was rejected. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, although he didn't do anything like that, he was rejected also <laughs> by so many Hindus who thought, he's giving out the name of Krishna to people, it will lose its power if fallen people chanted. If the Muslims uh, who are were considered unclean, meat-eaters and so forth, they chant the name of Krishna, the name will lose its power. This way they made complaints to the Muslim government that he's ruining our religion. Apparently there was some religious tolerance. The government looked into it. The drum was broken at the order of the Chandkazi and so forth. So anyway, there was a religious climate at the times, and there was the orthodoxy of Hinduism, and then there was the Muslim rule, and they were working in and amongst us. A good example of how they really dealt with this is the temple of Radha Govinda, one of the principal temples of Vrindavan. When the Goswamis went to Vrindavan, Jiva Goswami came also to Vrindavan. There he uh, remained under the guidance of Rupa and Sanatana Goswami. They had left home early on, wealthy, aristocratic. They were actually born in Karnataka in South India in a sophisticated uh, Brahmin family. And that family eventually moved to Bengal and Rupa and Sanatana Goswami Anupam or Balaba, their, their younger brother, were very well-educated and cultured persons and thus they were given in the Muslim government a very high position because the Muslim government could see, well, they may be Hindus, but these gentlemen are very cultured and very well-educated. So you're dealing with the upper echelon of the Muslim rule, these Rajas and so forth, they weren't all just uh, barbarians. They had a different culture than the Hindus. Some of them were very sophisticated. And ultimately it was the Goswamis who, by their enthusiasm and feeling for what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was about, attracted some of these Muslim leaders, rulers, emperors even, Emperor Akbar, to their brand of Hinduism, which was really the heart of all of the Hindu sacred literature that transcended Hinduism, per se. It translated all the, well, the two dominant religious cultures. It was the, in other words, essential spiritual ideal, which Govindaji represents. The temple that was built in Vrindavan for Govindaji under the direction of Rupa Goswami and really ultimately under Jiva Goswami by the patronage of the Raj of Jaipur is an interesting blend of architecture that reflects the prominent influences of both Muslim and Hindu at the time. So in a way, it serves to illustrate this point, that they were essential spiritual thinkers. And so they were, as was Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, quite uh, revolutionary. And they were also appreciated by the upper echelon of the Muslim government. Therefore, they, Rupa Sanatana, for example, were hired as educated people. And as a result of that, they were very, very wealthy. Extremely wealthy. And this culture, sophisticated cultural background, and their wealth and position in the society at large, their influence and so forth, all of this, Jiva Goswami witnessed, was was rejected by them once getting the darshan of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. When Chaitanya Mahaprabhu came, 
gave them darshan. From that day on, they joined with him and made arrangements to disentangle themselves. Rupa Goswami left, I believe, first, and Sanatana Goswami, they were like a team. He said, you go and I'll deal with this, because they were entangled in the government service. And as you know, Sanatana was, basically, he, he didn't report to work. He stayed at home discussing Srimad Bhagavatam with an assembly, and, and ultimately the uh, Muslim ruler put him in jail. And he bribed the jailer, and he got out, and Jiva Goswami witnesses that they had accepted loincloths. They became ostensibly beggars. So that they didn't uh, change religions, get a new religion for, for economic development. <laughs> they didn't come from a dysfunctional family or anything like that. They, they were, it was well thought out what they did. With such feeling, they met their eternal Lord, Sriman Mahaprabhu, and once seeing him, the ecstasy that he was about, was enough for them to change the course of their life forever. And to change the course of the lives of so many millions of people, as they continue to do today, forever, through their literature. And of their literature, Goswami Granta, none of them was more prolific than Jiva Goswami himself. Jiva Goswami witnessed his two uncles, Rup Sanatan, just walk out on life, what people thought to be life, and accept loincloths and barefooted walk across India following the madman, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And he was just a young lad, but he thought about it very deeply in a penetrating way, which was his nature. And he appeared before his mother shortly thereafter and said, how does one become a, a mendicant? a Goswami, a sannyasi, a, a renunciate. And she, of course, didn't take him very seriously and said, oh, well, to do that, you have to have a shaved head and you have to have the saffron cloth, and thinking that she would scare him off or, or that, again, that she didn't take him very seriously. She responded in that way. Next day, he appeared with a shaved head and with a saffron cloth, he appeared. Okra-colored cloth appeared before his mother. And... <laughs> She was soon to find out that it wasn't a play, it wasn't a game for him. By seeing the example of his elders, he understood the significance of that. He thought about it. They had this kind of life going for them. They left that behind to follow this Chaitanya Mahaprabhu as beggars. What kind of wealth must Chaitanya Mahaprabhu possess? What is that wealth that these rich and sophisticated, educated, cultured men become beggars in comparison to. They're prepared to just go out and beg for this. It's not within their sphere of influence present to capture this, to get this kind of commodity. They have to change their life altogether, their direction. So he followed their example. He left home. He went to Navadvip, and there he met Nityananda Prabhu. And Nityananda Prabhu instructed him in so many esoteric topics, took him on we read, there's a book called Navadvip Dham Parikrama by Bhaktivinoda Thakur, in which the Thakur envisioned the conversation between Jiva Goswami and Nityananda Prabhu, in which Nityananda Prabhu showed him all of the esoteric significance of the place of the holy Dham, Navadvip. So he got the direct darshan of Nitai and instruction from him, and from there he went to Banares, place of learning, and he brushed up on all the different Sadarshan philosophies of India at the time, and became a big scholar himself. And ultimately, as I said earlier, he went to Vrindavan and took shelter of Rupa Goswami, and Sanatana Goswami became the initiated disciple of, of Rupa Goswami, and became later the, the Siksha Guru of all the Gaudiya and Oriya Vaishnavas, the principal authority although it's questionable whether he had any initiated disciples. Many people claimed themselves to be his disciples and accepted him certainly as the, the leader, the Prabhupada of the Gaudiya Sampradaya. At the same time, there's some controversy surrounding the writings of Jiva Goswami on a very elevated topic that is central to Gaudiya Vaishnavism, worth uh, discussing. As I mentioned, he was the most prolific of the Goswamis. 
he was the philosopher of the Goswamis, more than the theologian that Rupa Goswami was. He wrote, according to Chaitanya Charitamrita, Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami says 400,000 verses. That would make him second only to Vyas in number of books published. He gives his own genealogy at the end of one of his commentaries, I think the Lagu Vaishnav Toshani, commentary to Sanatana Goswami's commentary, Bhagavatam, I believe there, and a list of some of the books that he wrote is given, and, and, and I think it concludes, etc., at the end, and so on. <laughs> too, too numerous to list. There's a place, actually, in Vrindavan, just near the Samadhi Mandir of Sanatana Goswami. You circumambulate it on the left, you go around, there's another Samadhi that they call the Granta Samadhi. And tradition has it that a number of the books of the Goswamis were put in, in Samadhi there. Because they were too elevated for people to read. <laughs> and it's anyway, it's a story. And that Samadhi is there, exactly what's inside. It's hard to say. They shared much with us, but it's a very, very high topic. Krishna, Krishna Lila, Radha Krishna Lila. So Jiva Goswami, most prolific amongst them, he was the philosopher. He gave the real philosophical foundation, primarily in Satsandarbha, an inconceivable work, sixfold treatise. And other than the realizations, the insights that he affords us in there as to the significance of the literature and what it's saying, the very fact that he had at his disposal, he had the capacity to cite so many references. It's mind-boggling to read. I said before that in Satsandarbha, Jiva Goswami has followed the traditional style of Vedanta in posing the Puva-Paksha. Paksha means like bird, so Paksha means wing, so Puva-Paksha means this is one wing, one side. The opposition says this, and we reply like this. This is the, how Vedanta is written, Vedanta Sutra. So he poses the question, and the, you can't even think of the questions that he comes up with to oppose his own point. It's mind-boggling just how far-reaching his thinking was about his own point, what could be doubted, about what point could be raised to counter it, and so forth. And um, and he just really buries the opponent and, and really builds a temple on top of that grave never to come up again. <laughs> and in many respects, that temple, the foundation is Satsandarva. That temple is Gopal Champa, which was his final, I believe, work. And it's a poetic expression of Krishna Sandarva, one of the sixfold treaties known as Satsandarva. Krishna Sandarva. The Satsandarva, that is my favorite. And... Um, and Gopal Champa, as I say, is the poetic. He did it again in poetry. And it's a whole explanation of Krishna Lila and Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. That Krishna Sandarbha's explanation of this one line of Srimad Bhagavatam, Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. Krishna is the supreme personality of Godhead. Ete Chamsakala Pungsa, Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. There it is given, so many avatars are mentioned. Ete Chaangsa Kala. So it is mentioned. And all these Ete Chaangsa Kala are all parts, Kala and incarnations of Narayan, of the Purusha, who is mentioned in the beginning of that third chapter of the first canto of Bhagavatam. You know, in the first chapter of Bhagavatam, there are six questions asked by the sages, headed by Shonaka, and then answers start to come from Sutta Goswami. One of the questions they asked about the avatars, Krishna's avatars. So third chapter, the, the answer is coming. It begins with the description of the Purusha avatars. It means the Vishnus. Mahavishnu, from the world's come, and the Garbhodaksha Vishnu enters each universe, and Chirudaksha Vishnu enters each atom and each heart. So describing these three Purushas, then he describes so many avatars. And then he says, all these avatars, their expansions and plenary portions of the Purushas. Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. Two means but. But Krishna is Bhagavan Swayam. Means he the source of the Purushas. 
So this Gaudiya Siddhanta, conclusions of the Gaudiya Vaishnav teaching in terms of tattva, philosophy, based on this one line of Bhagavatam. And I've heard it said from other Vaishnav Sampradayas, that's just one line of the Bhagavatam. You're making so much out of it. And what is our reply? Read Krishna Sandarbha. We made a much out of it. So much out of it. Jiva Goswami shows so wonderfully how important this one line is and how it consistently throughout the Bhagavatam, this is what is being taught. He shows all the other verses that support that. He takes all the verses in the Bhagavatam that seem to say the opposite and shows how they're really saying, speaking in support of it. It's an amazing work. So that work, then to take that work and put it into poetry, as he did in Gopal Champu. There he gives the whole of Krishna Lila. The setting of Gopal Champu is in the Aprakat Lila, the unmanifest Lila. The Lila comes to the phenomenal world, and then it recedes and goes back, becomes unmanifest. So Radha and Krishna and all the Brajbasis are in the Golok. And two minstrels who are somewhat related to Nanda Maharaj, come into Vrindavan. And it's said about them that not only are they wonderful in terms of their ability to take histories and compose them into music and sing them, as was the custom, so that the events could be kept alive in song and poetry and remembered easily, but they were also omniscient, these two. They knew about the past of people's lives and so forth. And so, so Nanda Maharaj greets them and then he asks, we've heard about your prowess and abilities and omniscience is said to be one of your abilities. So we want to see about that. So please compose about our lives, our past, something. So an assembly is gathered and they do the performance. And these two, Snigdakanta and Madhukanta, who in the Prakat Lila, manifest Lila in Gokul, they were Manigriva and Nalakuver, who had offended Narada, were cursed by Narada to take birth as twin Arjun trees in the courtyard of Nanda Maharaj. So they didn't miss much. <laughs> Big towering trees... They got the curse, which was a benediction. So they began, anyway, to narrate the pastimes. And Nanda Maharaj, Jasoda, everyone is just absolutely amazed at how they knew everything. Their thoughts, their feelings, things that no one knew. So the Leelas brought out very beautifully. They described the whole Leela of Krishna, all in poetry. And in that book... There is some emphasis on what we call Swakya, that Radha and Krishna were married. The doctrine of Gaudiya Vaishnavism is Parakya Bhav. Krishna Kavirashka sings, let us sing the glories of Parakya Bhav. Parakya Bhav means unwedded love, that Radha and Krishna are not married, and that there is a certain excitement to that type of loving arrangement that doesn't enable it to become too familiar and lose its uh, fever as married life. <laughs> as married life does. <laughs> they say the magic's gone. <laughs> Unfortunately, people look for the magic then somewhere else. They don't realize that it's only magic. Hmm? But the magic of Radha Krishna, Paramar love, that is another thing. It is magic, but it is real. Why is it real? Because it gives the highest pleasure to Krishna. So whatever pleases Krishna the most, that is reality. That is Dharma. Sangsidi Haritoshanam. The criterion for the perfection of action is determined by the criterion is how much Krishna is pleased. So Krishna is pleased most by this. Therefore, it's the highest dharma, truth. But it is an illusion at the same time. It's an illusion of yoga maya. 
Because in reality, in terms of tattva, Swakya means belonging. Everyone belongs to Krishna and to no one else. No one belongs to anyone else. Everyone belongs to God. So we'll speak of Radha and Gopis. How can they belong to anyone else? So an illusion is created in the Leela by which it appears that they belong to someone else. But even those so-called husbands belong to Krishna. So this is the idea. This is not any kind of advocacy of mundane adultery. It's a very high topic, theologically, a very, very high topic. It doesn't get any higher. And it may be a little, seem easy for us to understand, but then again, our society is very prone to parakia, <laughs> mundane parakia. If we heard so-and-so left his wife and went with somebody else, it doesn't hit the newspapers. That's fairly normal. I mean, in some circles, it may be thought bad or less than ideal, but there's certainly a lot of room for accommodating in this society. So we talk about Radha Krishna, Parakya. Our ability to appreciate that is our actual disqualification in many <laughs> respects, because really, bhakti is beyond morality. It doesn't mean it's immoral. It's beyond morality. Therefore, Vedanta has said, Atato Brahma Jignasu, now we should inquire about Brahman, and that's Uttar Mimamsa, and the Purva Mimamsa, previous treatise is about dharma. The latter portion of the Vedas is about the spirit, the difference between matter and spirit, and the former portion is about religion. So, Purvamimamsa begins with atato dharma jignasu. Now it's the time to inquire about religion. Uttarmimamsa says, now it's the time to inquire about Brahman, spirit. First is the time to inquire about how to be religious in the world. When you figure that out, the idea is you may be qualified to talk about the fact that you're not of the world. Having lived in it such a way that your actions are in consonance with the codes of direction for human society given by God, Scripture. Of course, there's room for inquiring about Brahman without having passed through serious inquiry and application of the principles of Dharma. And many of us, of course, came through that little opening, that loophole in the law. And that is what? Sadhusanga, 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 If you get association of a great soul, then by that association, you may come to the platform of being interested to inquire into this and qualified to inquire into it also without having passed through all these religious adherents. But you may start with some kind of a disadvantage, also, but you can start. You can make your inquiry into Brahman and deep into Brahman, Rasa Jignashu, if that sadhu is a Vaishnav. But if you've actually passed through the Dharma and so forth, then an inquiry is made, by, which also will require association at that point, no doubt. But then your course may be a little easier, or if you already have knowledge, if you come to bhakti out of knowledge, it will be easier than if you come out of... So the implication of that, of course, is that when you inquire having gotten the capacity to do so by hearing from a, a Vaishnava, getting that association. You should inquire, and the extent to which you understand what you're hearing will be exemplified in your coming to a level of morality, dharma, and knowledge, and so forth, in the context of culturing bhakti. These are all inside of bhakti. They're not some separate thing that we throw out, I'm a bhakti. I don't have to be uh, religious. Everything belongs to Krishna. People don't understand it. I can steal from them. Give it to Krishna. Uh, you, you make a face like, that's crazy, but I, I know people that have done it. So I bring it up. And it's grown to be misunderstood. There's a story, you know, in Bhagavad Gita, we talked about this the other night, how 640 million people are said have been killed, and so people wonder, how can you justify that? Well, the answer is that, as I mentioned, the teaching is such that if one becomes that pure of a servant, an egoless servant of the Lord, then doesn't slay anyone, really. There's no repercussions for his action, whatever it is, on behalf of the Lord. So there's a story how a man committed some murder, and then uh, he cited Bhagavad Gita. You cannot slay anyone, no one is slain, and 
Uh, I'm not attached. <laughs> Therefore, there should be no reaction. So the demigods came down, and some demigods came down in disguise. And this man was a gardener, so he had a beautiful garden. Now, I guess the demigods came, the story goes, and some demigod representatives came and said, uh, you know, what's going on? You killed this guy, you know, trying to justify it. And again, he's quoting Bhagavad Gita. He says, I didn't, I, I'm not the doer of anything. I'm not attached to my work or the reactions of the work. I've given all that up. I'm not involved. It's not me. It's just the modes of material nature. To be your good, just, uh, Gunai Sarvasa. He's speaking. Everything is just the movement of the modes of material nature. I'm not involved. I'm aloof from that. I'm just a witness. That just happened. So then the demigod said, it's a really nice garden you have. And he said, yeah, I've really worked hard on this. And <laughs> I, he starts taking all the credit for it. So he's condemned. <laughs> they got him, in other words. You don't want to do one thing. I take no credit for that. I'm Bhagavad Gita says. <laughs> So, not to be abused. So we should see that in our culture of bhakti, all these lesser things develop within us. The culture of bhakti, knowledge and detachment, should come. And religious thinking and, and so forth. So, there were some people who were the followers of Jiva Goswami, who considered themselves as followers, who couldn't accommodate the doctrine of Parakia. It's just the whole idea in the culture at that time of going with somebody else's wife was so foreign and so much unacceptable that speaking about God in terms of parakia just just couldn't compute it out. They just couldn't relate to it. So Jiva Goswami wrote a doctrine of Swakia that Radha and Krishna are married and Gopal Champu, when Snigdakanta and Madhukanta are telling the whole story. In the later part, Krishna, of course, goes to Dwarka and he returns to Vrindavan and he gets married to Radha and Krishna. And it's mentioned in Rama Vaivarta Purana, the marriage, so he supports all this from the Puranas and whatnot. So he supports the Swakya. Now, some people make a case that he differed from Rupa Goswami. He's a Swakya, and we follow Jiva Goswami. We, we follow the Swakya. We don't accept this Parakya. If there's Parakya... It only manifests in the prakat lila, the manifest lila on earth, where these kind of things may go on, something like that. But, first of all, when Krishna comes here, he doesn't develop any bhav from this world. The associates all come with their spiritual emotions from there, and they play them out here. So if we find paraki bhav in this lila, the prakat lila, then it must be there as well. This is one point. And another point is that in that book, Gopal Champu, on the night of the marriage between Radha and Krishna, here it is. The two are finally united, married. What does Radharani say? Ya Kumara Hara. You know this verse? From the, uh, maybe from Kavya Prakash. It's a verse that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu cited during the Ratiyatra. Rupa Goswami wrote a verse to explain its meaning. Because Mahabharu was in the Rathayatra and all of a sudden he started singing a love song from secular poetry about parakia. It's Really, it's about parakia. It's about the longing of a young girl for a young boy. Remembering the moonlit nights we spent together. So, some may wonder, what is, what's, what's Chaitanya Mahabharu singing a cinema song hmm? in the Rathayatra for? <laughs> But Rupa Goswami knew the reason. He wrote another verse explaining the meaning of that and he tacked it on the door of his bhajan kutir. When Chaitanya Mahaprabhu came to give him darshan, he saw that written there. He took it and tried to tear it up. Slapped Rupa Goswami. Because this is very confidential. And Rupa Goswami is writing it like that. I mean, they didn't have printing presses and newspapers every day. So it was like putting it in the headlines. The secret life of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, his highest ideal, putting it in the headlines, broadcasting it all over the world. You can see how we are indebted to Rupa Goswami for that. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said, how could you know my mind? 
And the conclusion was, well, he must have got the mercy of Saruk Damodar, who knows it. Otherwise, it's not possible. So it's a fact. He did. In a big way. This verse, Jiva Goswami cites, actually twice in Gopal Champu, but on the wedding night, Radharani says this verse. The implication is, although we're getting married here, actually, I like that parakia better. <laughs> in those days, that was, that's better. Hmm? <laughs> so in a secret way, he shows the parakia doctrine. In Ujbal Nilmani, he has a commentary, Jiva Goswami, that's Rupa Goswami's book on Madhurya Rasi, he has a commentary, and in a commentary, he stresses Swakya, the nature of the Swakya, of the, how God and Krishna are belonging, married, and there also in one verse, in the end, near the end, I believe, he says that actually some things I wrote here correspond with what I've written in other places, and some do not. Those that correspond with what I really want to say, and those that don't are something else. So he was dealing with a certain religious climate at the times, and as any preacher has to do, has to be sensitive to that and know we can, how much we can say and how much we can't say and how far we can go. And this is one of the reasons that, as I mentioned earlier, the Goswami's Rupsanat and Jiva Goswami didn't initiate. Because the climate of the times in Vrindavan, as far as the Hindu sector went, was that Rupa Goswami and Sanatana Goswami had been ostracized, so there was some question about them. The climate was very orthodox Hindu, and Smarta Brahmins had a monopoly to a large extent yeah, on, the, on the religious practices and uh, giving initiations and so forth by which they made their their living. So Gopal Bhatta Goswami was sent by Mahabrabhu to Vrindavan to take shelter of Rupa Sanatan. But they sent prospective disciples to Gopal Bhatta Goswami to be initiated. And he was from a South Indian Brahmin family, uh, Paka, in their respect. Couldn't be criticized. So they made thoughtful adjustments like any preacher has to do. And so in Jiva Goswami's writing, also it appears that he felt the need to write in such a way that some people would be pacified according to the time, but to make clear for those who look deeply the truth of the doctrine of Parakya and its eternality. And, and along came Vishwanath Chakrabarti Thakur years later and wrote another commentary on Ujbal Nilamani and explained some of these things. So largely what Jiva Goswami has done in Brahma Samhita commentary, Gopal Champu and his commentary on Ujbal Nilamani has stressed the Siddhanta, Tattva, the Tattva, which in he is the really the Tattva Acharya of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, the philosopher. That philosophically speaking, we have to make this foundation, understand this point. There's no question of Radha and Krishna's affair being illicit in any way. Everyone, everything belongs to Krishna. But from the point of view of Pava, then, that is another thing. And Paraki, and that's what we're ultimately interested in. But if we don't understand the Tattva, there's not much hope that we'll get any Bhava. That Bhava will be misunderstood, and how will we be able to cultivate it? So we're indebted to Jiva Goswami for giving the Sampradaya such a firm philosophical groundwork and foundation on which we can build. I've compared it previously to the canvas, that foundation, the writing of Jiva Goswami, the philosophy of Jiva Goswami, on which the, the art of Krishna Lila, the picture of Krishna Lila is, is drawn. So we should become acquainted with that as much as possible, as much as our capacity for philosophy is. Then by the grace of Jiva Goswami, we have some hope that we can enter into the world of spiritual feelings, where he was also certainly a big member. He's considered to be Milas Manjari and Krishna Lila, an ascetic mendicant living by the begging bowl, and a big philosopher, thinker in Gorlila and a young village girl, milkmaiden in Krishna Lila. That tells us much that what are those milkmaids of Vrindavan? That they're not without knowledge, but knowledge is suppressed there because it's not required. It gets in the way. But here in the material world when they come, 
then there's a need to show that knowledge. And in such a big way, these Goswamis have done so. In terms of literature, none more so than Rupa Goswami, whom, as I said, is credited with writing over 400,000 verses, the most prolific of the Goswamis. And his philosophical work, in which he presents the doctrines of the Sampradaya, has never been challenged. This is an interesting point, because Madhva, Ramanuja, of course, they were big opposers to the doctrine of Advaita given by Shankar, in which the eternality of the Lord and his form are done away with. Ramanuja was the first, and he wrote so many things, but it's not that there wasn't an answer back. So many answers came back and over the years, and Madhva was very, very, even more overtly in opposition to Shankar than Ramanuja. His writing, the writing of his followers, has been answered by Shankarites. One of the big answers was that of Madhusudan Saraswati, who I've cited at different times in uh, my commentary in Bhagavad Gita, who was a contemporary of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, younger, but he was around at the time of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, although he never met him. If he had, of course, he would have become a Vaishnava. But um, his Advaita Siddhi was written to counter the Madhvas challenge, a book that they had written, I forget the name of it, that stood for quite some time. But no one has ever even attempted to refute Jiva Goswami's treatise, Satsandarva. Some people have, maybe some people have criticized, but no one has gone, taken the time and effort and tried to actually write something to counter it. So it's important for us as Gaudi Vaishnavas to become acquainted with that treatise as much as possible. And that will give us such strong philosophical ground to stand on. And we need that in the world of so many thoughts and ideas and philosophies, and especially in the information age in which we live. We have access to so many uh, currents of thought that we not, will not be washed away by those currents or blown in the wind of other philosophies and theologies. We have to have firm standing on the philosophical ground of what Shijiva Goswami has given us in Satsandarva, Kramasandarva, which is his explanation of his commentary on Bhagavatam, one of his commentaries on Bhagavatam. And Jiva Goswami was the youngest of the Goswamis. And there's a saying about him worth ending this discussion on that um, is a particular take on a line from Srimad Bhagavatam. First canon of Srimad Bhagavatam says, Jivo Jivasya Jivanam. One living being, this is the reality in the material world, is food for another. That's not such a nice place. One living being is food for another. Jivo, Jivasya, Jivanam. And what is it said about Jiva Goswami? He is the life for all Jivas. <laughs> That's right. That he is a life for all Jivas. He's life-giving for all. Jivo, Jivasya, Jivanam. So taking shelter of Jiva Goswami, that can give life to all Jivas of the world who are all eating one another and dying in Martilokam, the place of death. But what he's given is such. He writes of himself, one Jiva, very humbly. But the Goswamis, but the, his followers replied, Jiva, Jiva, said Jivanam. This one Jiva. There are so many Jivas and they're all eating one another <laughs> and dying. <laughs> I eat you, die, and then next life you eat me, and this way we're going on. But this one jiva, amongst all of them, Shijiva, Goswami, taking shelter of him, that can give life to all jivas, a life that they could have never imagined, a life that is the complete antithesis of this life on the take, where one living being is food for another. Entering the land where getting is synonymous with giving, here we live to die thinking that getting requires taking. But Jiva Goswami shows us this, that there's another land where you can live forever, where giving is synonymous with getting. In fact, getting is not even in the dictionary there, but how much they have. We cannot imagine. I told the other day, some guests were here, Gurudas and some of his friends, and we were walking and it came to my mind, that argument of Chaitanya Charitamrita that Mahaprabhu arranged after the Jagannath Rathyatra festival, discussion between Srivas and Surup Damodar about the glories of Lakshmi versus 
the glories of Radha and Gopis by Kuntha versus Vrindavan. And in the course of the discussion, it was brought up by Srup Thamara Goswami that in Vrindavan there are trees, Kalpa Riksha, they give everything, whatever whatever anybody wants, wish-fulfilling trees, and Kamandenu, cows, who you can milk for whatever you want. Can you imagine that? It sounds a bit fantastic to us, but what's said next, the purport of this makes sense out of the whole thing. We'll try to see what's being said there. Kalpa Riksha, Kamandenu, you can get whatever you want from those trees or cows. Isn't it a wonderful place? We think, well, it sounds a imaginary, a bit fantastic, but yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> but how do you get there? How you get there will be understood by understanding the true opulence of that place. Mahaprabhu was showing that Vrindavan is more opulent than anywhere. It has these kind of trees. You can get whatever you want. But what is the opulence there? The people don't want anything except milk from those cows to offer to Krishna. You could get whatever you want from the tree. They just take the fruit and offer to Krishna. Like those coward boys. They wanted those fruits. Taliban. They wanted to taste them because they knew Krishna will be pleased if we taste them. Out of Preman, the verse says, they wanted to taste those fruits unimaginable. Ami kichu chayina, ami kichu chayina. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. I don't want anything. I don't want anything. Just chant Hare Krishna with this spirit. I don't want anything. And as we've been discussing, we don't need anything. So why should you want anything? We have a necessity. We have a necessity to stop wanting. Stop thinking that by adding things onto our life, it will improve. By taking off your coat and uh, shirt, and so you get to your real self. You find yourself. So take off all these coverings, gan, karma, the way in which they, these influences cause us to move in the world and, and burden ourselves. And cover the real self, and then fly as high as you can in the sky of your spiritual prospect. That is the teaching of Jiva Goswami. Jiva Jiva Siddhivanam. By his grace, he can live in that mystical, mythic land of Vrindavan, where everything is at one's disposal, but nobody wants anything because they have love. In love, then, the city can burn down if the two of us are together, <laughs> if you think. That's a fact. Even in the material sense, we have this sense about love. Humans can think about it. So take it now to the fullest extent. That's what Krishna consciousness is about. Shijiva Goswami Any question? Regarding Gopal Bhatta Goswami, since he was uh, like the initiating Acharya. Yes, Gopal Bhatta Goswami was the initiating Acharya for the Sampradaya. Mahaprabhu gave him his seat, sent him his seat, asan, and his cloth. And those things are preserved on the altar at the Radharaman Temple. He was the Zonal Acharya. <laughs> That's why some, I guess uh, that example is probably sometimes used in, as a precedent for use or misuse, whatever. Like I, I've heard, I don't know too much, you know, that in, uh, like in the Rheinmar, there's that, that mat. Keshav Maharaj, that uh, there's another person, another... Raman Maharaj is the Acharya. He's the Acharya, he does the initiating, even though the, he has God brothers. Uh, Qualified. Yeah, so it's, it's that kind of precedent that because of his background or something like that. that Keshav Maharaj had a policy that the Acharya of the Mat, in all succeeding generations, will be a nice Dika Brahmachari who come from the Naistika Brahmachari background. So Vama Maharaj came from Naistika Brahmachari background. Actually, I don't think he's even a fully initiated disciple of Keshav Maharaj in, th- in the sense that he got, I think he got Harinam from someone else even. But anyway, he's his disciple in, in substance. And he is the successor. He was senior to Narayan Maharaj and Trivikra Maharaj, who were all three, the first three sannyas disciples of Keshav Maharaj. They were the first three sannyas disciples. Yeah. Brahman Maharaj. 
No, Vaman Maharaj was was one of them. Maybe maybe he was Stephen before the two other two. But at any rate, he was a nice Tika Brahmacharya. It means he had no, he was never married his whole life. So he's the Acharya. And the next Acharya for the Godivedanta Samiti has already been chosen. Right, right. And Narayan Maharaj was not a nice Tika Brahmacharya. So he, when he was given the charge of the Keshavji Gaudiya Moth, that means the Moth in, in Mathura of Keshav Maharaj. And it used to be that whomever came, he would, he was making so many devotees there from the Braj and so forth, that he would give them Harinam, and then they would get their Diksha from Vaman Maharaj. Still, that's the system. But, you know, nowadays, then, Narayan Maharaj began to attract the Western following, and so he initiates as well. They've, they've worked out something, acknowledging his spiritual you know, reality and so forth. I mean, it wasn't going to, they weren't going to, just suppress it over some technicality. I, right. Now he initiates widely. So Gopal Bhatta was the... Because yeah, of he was the official Guru Tattva. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe some... Like I said, the climate at the time. Yeah, that was largely the reason. Certainly we can't say that Rupa Goswami was unqualified right. to initiate. <laughs> and he initiated Jiva Goswami, so it has to be external. Reasons. There may be some internal reasons of Mahaprabhu's preference for one reason or another. It said that Gopalbhatta Goswami was uh, well. There are different opinions, but one opinion is that Gopalbhatta Goswami was somehow an incarnation of Ananga Manjari, who's Balaram, Shakti manifestation of Balaram. It's also maintained that Janavama was. Uh, I believe in Angamanjari, so there are different opinions about this kind of thing. But that, anyway, taking that side gives some maybe internal way of thinking about it. That Baladev is a, the guru. guru, and I haven't gone too far with that thinking. I take it more on the external considerations that he became the acharya because of the social climate of the times, and then he wrote the the Smriti. Vaishnava Smriti, Hari Bhakti Vilas, all these rules and regulations. Sanatana Goswami edited his work, and it's all about how to be... It's, a, it's all written such a way as that the Vaishnav doctrine, practices of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, which was a new sampradaya being you know, formed at the time, so to speak, it kind of fit in with the religious climate of the times. These smartest, I mean, the, you know, you can take a breath without chanting some mantra. <laughs> You can't believe how many rules and regulations they got. <laughs> There's a fellow, I don't know if I mentioned this to you before, but uh, whom I met, who who was a businessman, Indian businessman. He used to fly from Bombay on business to the Middle East, and somewhere he picked up a Bhagavad Gita of Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita as it is, and he, he got it maybe in the Middle East in an airport or something, and he read it on the way back, and he, he was just so impressed that he started coming to the temple in Bombay. And uh, he was from a Ramanuja family, Sri Vaishnava background. And he had to go to Calcutta once on business. And when he was getting out of the airplane in the airport in Calcutta, he met Bhagwat Maharaj, who was a disciple of Bhakti Siddhanta Sastitaka, who at that time was in charge of the Bhagbazar Mat, the famous temple in Calcutta. And he spoke with him, and he was just charmed by him, and he became his disciple. And he became an uh, acharya in that mission. And there was a split in that mission. And He's independent of that now. Anyway, I met him, and um, a couple of years back in Vrindavan, came to Parmavati Marsh's mouth, and I was there. Very, very nice. And he said, oh, Parmavati, I read everything that you've written. And I said, so nice. And he was very humble, and he considered us all as senior to him. We had been Prabhupada's disciples for so long. He was very, very, very learned, and very pukka, and had very much... Uh, enthusiasm for speaking the Bhagavad and so forth. And uh, anyway, he told us, very nice man, he told us that that my background was such, for my family, that if you had a piece of cloth that had been washed and it was hanging on the line and hadn't dried in the sun yet and therefore wasn't considered fully clean and you touched it, you had to take a bath or you were unclean. He was to give that as an example. He said, you can't imagine how liberating it was to read Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita and the, the essential 
chant Hare Krishna. And a lot of these things aren't as uh, important as people make them out to be. You know, he was telling that. So, so many rules and regulations are there in Hari Bhakti Vilas. And if we look at the Gaudi Vaishnavas in many missions today, they just edit that out according to what they feel is appropriate and practical. And one verse there says, if you're born in a Brahman family, you have to be initiated by a Brahman. Brahman Vaishnava. If you're born in a Sudra family, you initiated by a Sudra Vaishnava. Prabhupada commented about this is more or less a material consideration. Yeah. <laughs> but it also has some value, if you can understand, because it's, it's just certain psychology. You're from the West, and you have a Western guru, then you can. It's harder to misunderstand him, and uh, harder for him to misunderstand where you're coming from psychologically or emotionally. All right. Just up there.